Thank you for tuning into White Centipede Noise Podcast. Please hit the like button and subscribe to this channel. This podcast is made possible by viewer and listener support. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash white centipede noise. White Centipede Noise is a label and mail order based in Germany, releasing top quality noise on tape, CD, and vinyl. White Centipede Noise is also the premier EU-based distributor of international noise. Visit whitecentipedenoise.com to see available label releases and weekly distro updates. Welcome to White Centipede Noise Podcast. Today my guest is an artist who makes excellent narrative ambient music and is behind one of the most eclectic and interesting noise labels active right now. Please welcome Rose Actor Engel of Apologist and No Rent Records. Yep. <laughs> Hi, Oscar. <laughs> Good morning. How are you doing? I am doing okay. I'm on my uh, second cup of tea. <laughs> Good. Excellent. Cool. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking the time this morning to to chat with me. So, um, kind of standard thing to start with is, um, can you tell me a little bit about your personal background as a as a as a musician, as an artist, and how, you know, kind of how that transitioned to working in noise and experimental music? Sure. Um, so I think I had like a reasonably normal trajectory. Um, I was in bands, like I started playing guitar when I was like 12 and I was in bands in high school and my early twenties, mostly punk bands. Um, and I like didn't really have any like you know I was just playing guitar in bands you know I wrote mm -hmm. some songs but not very often like mostly I was playing other people's songs in punk bands and um and you know I felt that I was like creative I was like I wrote a lot when I was younger but I didn't really have any I like started making ambient music like kind of late or started making experimental music in general kind of late into my 20s um, when I I was in a punk band with this guy who also was in a band called Gigi Lohan mm -hmm. with my friend Rachel, Rachel Slur, who does mm -hmm. Stroker. Sure. And I wound up moving into her house after a bad breakup. And her house, Heaven's Gate, is like, has been having noise shows in Philadelphia for like almost the last decade. So like in many ways, that was like my first exposure to people like doing noise or like having their own projects even. Like I just yeah. sort of wasn't aware that that was a thing. There was music I listened to that was like that, but I didn't really know that there was like a DIY aspect mm -hmm. at all. And so when I was living there, I was just sort of around it all of the time. 
And I started doing this podcast, I think, in, like, 2014 called Taste Vampire, where I, like, interviewed people who, like, came to our house for shows. And those interviews are, like, all, like, pretty terrible. Um, Like, I'm just, like, so so wasted in all of them, and so is everybody (laughs) I'm interviewing. But... I'm part of the podcast is I would make people, I was like, when I moved in there, I like realized how sort of small my scope of perspective was. Cause I was just like in punk bands, listening to punk. And so everybody I interviewed, I would make them give me these like lists of stuff that I should listen to, mm-hmm. to get into like other, to expand my horizons musically. Sure. Basically. And, um, so I started listening to a lot of stuff that people were recommending to me and listening to the music that was like being performed at my house And, um, meanwhile, my mother had this like amazing, this profit, um, 600 synth that she'd gotten as like a graduation present in like 1982. And I was just sitting in the, um, attic at my parents' house. And at some point I was just like, um, I'm going to like go there and start like recording, you know, like now I feel comfortable, like editing audio files because I've been editing them for the podcast. So like, let Mm. me try and like record my own stuff on the synth. So my like first record, I was just going to my folks' place, like recording like on like a Zoom recorder from the synth and then editing at home. And then, you know, I started getting asked to play shows and eventually my mom sort of like gave me the synth, like permanent loan. And I sort of went from there. And I started dating Jason while I was still working on that first record. And he was like um, immensely supportive of me, like trying to do my, like just like a real um, cheerleader for me. Yeah. So, like, that's sort of how I, like, got into making the music that I currently make. Um, cool. Do you do you have any other musical training or, or like, not, technical learning in, in that sense? Not really. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a fast learner for, like, digital stuff in general. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I worked in web design for a bunch of years. Like, I, like, I'm a pretty good, like, digitally at picking stuff up. And I mm-hmm. went to school for entertainment and arts management although I like dropped out and re-entered like a bunch of times but like I had some experience like working a sound like doing live sound and stuff like through like classes there but in terms of like professional training like not really like I took guitar lessons from like an old hippie friend of my parents in middle school but like that's about it uh. <laughs> this episode of white Sympy noise podcast is brought to you by oxen records now available on oxen records Neural, The Decisive Moment CD, Scum and Unsustainable Social Condition, Necessary Downfall CD, Systemic Sewage and Unsustainable Social Condition, All Available Weaponry CD, Title Still Available, Circuit Wound, A Sudden Lapse of Concentration, Scathing, A Capital Beneath the Waves, and Leah P, Surviving the Familiar. Available soon internationally from White Centipede Noise or from the label at oxenrecords.bigcartel.com. Okay, so when when you and Jason met and you were you said you're working on your first release or album, was that Apologist? Yeah, that was Houston. Um, okay, that was Apologist. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's I worked neat. on that record for like so long. Like I started recording it in like 2014, and okay. I like didn't release it until like 2018, just because I was like you know, just had like imposter syndrome. I was like, it's too late to like start doing new thing. Like all these people I'm friends with got into this when they were like 18 or something, you know, like, um, but eventually I felt like it was good enough to release. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And that's, I mean, that's the one that really made me think of the your musical background because it's very, 
musical and musically very like I don't want to just proficient, but it's like you know obviously you have a, a strong understanding of a feel for music. So I mean, I was wondering if somehow you'd been doing that in other in other forms for a long time. But you know, I suppose like being in bands and things like that 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 you know, and you have it you have it in you, I guess you have like an ear for it. So. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I mean, like, I've been listening, you know, my whole, it's always been like sort of like a driving, you know, like I don't leave my house without headphones on, like I'm basically like never like not listening to music. So, I mean, I imagine like that carries over in some way into an application sense at some point. Yeah. Um, So with Apologist, what, what are some of the things that you're, well, first, can you tell me, can you tell me what the significance of the name is? Sure. Um, so when I was doing that podcast, there was this punk venue in Philly called Connie's Rick Rack. And, um, and basically the venue was getting canceled, um, because one of their sound guys was problematic in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, I forget which way he was problematic at this point, but I always like had this sort of like, a whatever reactionary like edgelord like perspective where I just like I like didn't I mean this was like a like you know DIY not DIY it was like a bar but it had been like doing punk shows like huge part of the scene in Philly for so many years and people who like never even went to the venue were like um trying to shut it down um, (laughs) just because they like didn't like some guy that was there but they like weren't like a part of the community in the first place right and so I like was trying to do this podcast episode where I'd get like two people who wanted to cancel the venue and two people who did it and like make them sit in a room and talk to each other about it. I like thought that that would be fun. And I also thought that maybe it would be productive. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was sort of poking around on like Facebook, trying to get people to, um, to participate in this, the people who were anti the venue were like, um, basically calling me an apologist and it was like the first time that I'd ever been called that but I was like well I guess maybe I am like I'm like certainly like an equivocator you know like and and then that first record like wound up you know to be like more personal wound up like dealing with like a like rape that happened to me and I like was sort of dealing with like my own sort of reaction to that which like wasn't a desire a sort of punitive desire but more just like a desire to no longer be feeling the bad things that it made me feel like it was like much more internalized. And I just sort of, you know, like (laughs) it's sort of like an all be that like type perspective where I was just like, yeah, I guess I am, you know, (laughs) like, um, and I mean, there's like, I also like when I was like first becoming friends with Rachel, she always told me that I apologized too much. You know, like I did that girl thing where I was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. (laughs) And just sort of, yeah, I don't know. I like identified with the name and there are times where like now I feel like, like I released a record under my government name last year because I was sort of feeling like maybe I should, you know, my music isn't particularly edgy, you know, and the name sure. sort of has all of these connotations. <laughs> and I'm like, am I like doing myself a disservice by having this sort of like tongue in cheek, like edgelord name for my like sad ambient music? <laughs> but Well, it's interesting. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that, but that's, that's a, I mean, that's, that's a surprise to me that that's where the name comes from because I, I did pick up on the, the, the you know, the personal nature of the, 
of the releases. I, I, I assumed it was something directly tied to that. I didn't, I don't, I don't read it that way at all. Um, yeah, I mean, I had just been sticking, you know, I had the name in my head before, like, the record was anywhere near close to done. I was just like, that's okay. kind of a cool band name. Like, yeah, when I do a project, I'm going to call it that. Because <laughs> that, that's pretty much like a middle finger, like, fuck you, punk rock kind of, like, name. <laughs> I mean, knowing knowing the context, but it doesn't necessarily, I mean, I, it like you said, I mean, the music is not really reflective of that. But that's, I mean, I don't know. I think it's, I, I don't think there's any reason to switch. Um, What, what are some of the things that you, you know, if you can tell me some of the things you like are consciously trying to communicate or, or process with, with that project. Yeah. So I think I'm like pretty specific thematic, thematically record to record. Mm -hmm. So like that first record was like pretty much directly dealing with like that rape and the ramifications of it, mm. but it's not always, you know, the second record was about being like a Philadelphia sports fan. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. like, you know, so it's like, I mean, I, the record that I released under my own name was about our dog dying. And, but mm. like, so like, it's like, I have these sort of like basic ideas for what I want to make a record about. And then there's like a long process of gathering field recordings that sort of relate. So for the sports one, you know, Jason and I were season ticket holders for the Sixers for a bunch of years. And the year that I released it, the Eagles won the Super Bowl. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so I was just like going to Sixers games and recording like the crowd at the Sixers games. I got like everybody like acting psychotic in like the riots after the Eagles won, like on Broad yeah. Street and like, but so like, yeah, for, Which release is that? it's called underdog. It came out on alien passengers. It okay. was my uh, second tape. Cool. Um, you know, I mean, I, that's a great label and I don't, I don't have that, but that's definitely something then to now even more, no more reason to, to search it out. Cool. <laughs> yeah. I was so like uh, honored to be on that label. It's like one of my favorite labels for yeah. sure. Um, Kalino definitely like dog lady Island was like one of the, first like noise projects that I got like deeply invested in and yeah. um so yeah it was great to great to put that out on there but yeah I, I basically just sort of they're all sort of like motivated by like something that emotionally is like either exciting me or devastating me at the time and then mm. I sort of like build the songs around that theme sure and like collect sounds that go with it. And then, you know, there's like obviously a whole lot of like processing that I'm doing to them after that. But yeah, you, I mean, you mentioned already that you pick up digital things quite quickly and have like a lot of training kind of background in this kind of world. Um, I was kind of curious because, you know, a lot, a lot of noise, a lot of what tracks attracts people to at least doing noise in the first place is the fact that, you know, you can basically do it without, necessarily knowing anything you know some people can make a brilliant album like with a you know garbage can and a microphone yeah. but 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 um i i, I hear in you know like for example uh anadonia anadonia like for yes. example that one that one particularly like a very proficient and conscious like also technical and like compositional stuff at play are you is this like a working style that comes naturally to you just to, to work like that? Or is that something where you're like constant? Cause like sometimes I'll consciously be like, well, you know what? I could just do my fucking contact mic thing, but I'm going to like force myself to be a little bit more. Uh, and I think some other people just, it comes naturally. That's how they like to work. That just comes for them. Like what, how is that for you? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I would say that, that for everything, there's like a recording element that very much is impulsive and improvisational to some extent, right? Like I'm getting drunk and I'm playing my sand for an hour or like, you know, just making a shitload of loops and just letting them run around my studio. Like, and as I sit here, like, yeah, like drinking a white call, like staring at them, like thinking about, you know, like, and that stuff is certainly not compositional, but I, I do, you know, like the writing happens in editing. So, mm-hmm. um, so, and that part is intentional. I mean, there's still like, it, I wouldn't say that like, I like sit here and, and draw out the scope of how something's going to be, but I'm much more meticulous in the editing process than I am in the recording process for sure. sure. Yeah. Um, and that's what takes me like a long time. Like the generating of like the stuff that isn't the field recordings can like happen pretty quickly. I mean, for Anhedonia, I like the process for that was basically I had made like 25 tape loops like in cassettes because I was supposed to go on this tour right before COVID started, this like two week tour. So I made like a bunch of extra loops because I knew like I wasn't that good at it at the time. I was like, they're all going to break on the road. I'm just like not... It's not going to be a problem. I'm going to have all these backup loops. I stayed up for like two nights, just like sitting there, like meticulously making these loops. And then like a week after that, it was like, oh, your tour is canceled. You're never allowed to leave your house again. (laughs) I was like so upset about that, Um, like disappointed. And like, you know, just sort of felt like whatever momentum I had had just stalled. Um, And, you know, anhedonia means like the inability to experience joy. Um, but yeah, so I just like sat here in my studio and played those loops until they broke one after Mm -hmm. another. So that was like the process of weeks. Um, I actually had made them pretty good. It turned out like I would just like leave them playing like overnight and come back in and I'd have like a 24 hour long recording. Um, and like, and then, so those were like the core of what became that CD and then I sort of built around them um, with synth. My friend had left her um, her Waldorf Blofeld at my house for like the first six months of COVID. So I used that a lot on that record. Um, but yeah, I- um, were, were they loops with the same material on them? No, so I was like, and it was sort of from the same place. Like I recorded to like a long tape and then cut it up. Yeah. So it was like, they were similar to each other. Like they would have easily filled the same spots in live sets. Yeah. But they weren't like identical. Okay. No, that's interesting. Cause yeah, I mean, there's this, this light, you know, it's like a light motif throughout the whole album or it seems like, yes. you know, you, you know, yes, I'm, absolutely. I'm like wondering like, was this like part already like not the part that like, you can hear something different, but, but this, these, these synth layers or these, I guess what these, I, I assume are the tape loops kind of yeah. returning and, and being processed and, and used in different ways and they're slightly different. So that's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and then how does, you know, how the, the, the album you name on, made on your solo name, you mentioned this was, uh, had to do with the, the, the dying of your dog. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was like, yeah, that's sort of like the least affected 
release I've ever done. Like I sort of justified doing it under my, my name instead of apologist because I didn't really do much editing on that. Like I cranked that album out like basically like the week after the dog died and then sat mm. on it for about a year. And it mm. was just like, that was the process that I was just like, it was just real to real loops. Um, mm. Like I recorded something sad on my synth and I just made these real to real loops and just sat like crying in my studio. <laughs> and then yeah. like, I was like, Oh, these all sort of just came. I intending to make something more with them. And I was so happy with how they turned out that I was like, I'll just sort of build each song around like a loop that I particularly liked. But I didn't do like a lot of like adding stuff to them. They're just sort of what they are. And um, yeah, the Amor's Kaddish is like a, it's a Jewish prayer that you say every day for a year when an immediate family member dies. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a sort of, yeah, I was trying to like simulate that sort of like healing through repetition. <laughs> you know, yeah, if you sure. just like put one one foot in front of it, another, and eventually you come out of it like not sad. Right. And I've experienced a lot of loss besides the dog. Like in my life, like I yeah. used to be, um, and I you know wasted most of my twenties being a heroin addict, and like. Okay. So I've lost like, you know, dozens and dozens of friends, but the dog dying really did hit me. It broke me harder than I was like, he was just like such a light in our home when we were stuck here during COVID. And then it was just like, I couldn't hang on any longer. Damn. Okay. So it happened that that recently. Yeah, it was, um, he died in like November of 2020. Okay. Oh, sorry. Sorry to hear that. It is what it is. (laughs) Did the, did the process of making the album help? I think so. Um, I think I probably shouldn't have sat on it for as long as I did. (laughs) I should have probably like released it and like released the feelings rather than like being really precious about it for a while. Mm. Um, But yeah, I I think, I think it was helpful. I generally find it helpful in terms of like processing whatever I'm going through to write about it. Yeah. Um, What about candy ricotta? (laughs) <laughs> um what do you want to know about candy ricotta <laughs> tell, tell us about that project okay so candy ricotta is um a project that i do with rachel rachel slur um and do is sort of a stretch because the project has been you know sort of functional since like 2016 and we have like a combined three songs uh-huh. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, the way we made the first song, which is on that split that came out on that Australian label, Grog Pappy, mm-hmm. um, we like, Rachel and I were just like day drinking with Jason at my, our, my old house. Like we were just like, it was one of those like nights where like mornings where you like wake up, like hungover and just like decide to keep partying. Yeah. Um, and at the time we had this idea that we were going to like do this thing called like plant parenthood that was like, sort of like fake, like we like, you know, we were just sort of always making fun of like the sort of blatant hypocrisies in like SJW culture and like how like, you know, it's like mostly like these like white, like our peers, like being like the loudest when like you know we really don't like have it too bad you know like there's like there's a 
real sort of disconnect between like people who are like actually marginalized and yeah. like pussy hat era like right. Hillary Clinton like you know at the time that was very uh very yeah, yeah. relevant like, that sure. election was going on yeah um so we just started like writing lyrics and we were like what if we like switched off reading them and we did them in the like bitchiest like dumb bimbo voice we could do and we were like very set on like just punching inwards like just making fun of people who were like basically like us yeah so like the first song is more sort of like a proof of concept where we're just like yelling about how we just want to feel safe and like yeah. you know talking about like latigre tote bags and stuff and the other two songs that we like wound up doing one of them was like about only fans getting taken off the internet and like the dystopian future of us like not being able to make money by like showing our pussies online. <laughs> <laughs> and it like ends with us like dying with the vibrator and stuff. <laughs> and then like, uh, and the other song on that tape like was about like uh, how people act like doing cocaine is fine, but like heroin addicts are disgusting, which was yeah. like something that we were like encountering a lot in Philly. Rachel yeah. particularly is like super into like harm reduction mm stuff and there just is this like insane dichotomy where it's like it's okay for everybody to be doing coke but somebody right. who's using opiates is like getting thrown out of the party and kicked to the curb right um so like we've written a couple new songs we're allegedly like gonna try and play with um roger stella when he comes through the east coast this summer mm-hmm. we're gonna like do a candy show around that and so we've written some new lyrics we've got like a um uh, a cab song about like, but our dad's a cop yeah. type thing. <laughs> and cool. The performances are, I think, why people really liked us because we just like basically did like just like performance art pieces where we're like going live on Instagram on selfie sticks and like just like a ton of like stupid like crowd work, like yeah, telling yeah. all the men to go to the back. Rachel's like walking around saging the men and like calling them <laughs> abusive and like you know, I think like it just like it was people like you know, it's like such a like we really haven't like done that much with it, but people seem to like it because it was like I guess just like expressing a sentiment that yeah people feel but like don't like make fun of musically that often sure sure, sure. Um, <laughs> and probably don't feel i mean some people don't feel like they can or you know don't have the courage i think to to make jokes or well, yeah i think we're like good them. voices for it because it's not you know we're making fun of people like us right. you know <laughs> or like people who are like it's like allowed because we're like girls making fun of other girls, right. you know, it's like, whereas if like a guy was to do a project like that, it would be misogynist, you know, but it's <laughs> yeah. like our own internalized misogyny is fine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. Hey, what's this? The Rita Lake Depth Lurker Machine? Why, oh my goodness, a cassette off of the Cruel Symphonies label? Wow, this is a really good reissue. I better buy one.
what do you like more, uh, performing or or recording and writing and working in the studio? Um, God, I really love performing. Um, and, you know, I'm happy that I'm able to do it again. Um, I used to definitely, I would definitely say that I preferred writing and did not like performing. Like the whole time that I was in bands, I would have like insane performance anxiety. Like my like legs would be shaking when I was standing mm. up there with the car, uh, with the guitar. And I like, couldn't like look at the audience at all. I'm always like looking down, like sure. just like, um, but I've gotten really confident in, in my ability to perform like as the, like as apologist and have come to really like it. And there's something really, I, I, um, I like made a decision pretty early on into the project to really like compose my sets. Mm -hmm. So I like write these, like I've got a bunch of them like hanging up on the wall, but I like write these little scores. Are you able um, to show us one? Is that, would that be a hard? Yeah, sure. Uh, let me grab one. Um, but yeah, it's like, I write these little mm -hmm. like, sheets and stuff like with like all of the steps sort of written out yeah and the decision to start doing that and like give myself these roadmaps to follow when I was playing really uh made me love playing like to look at it like you know like I don't like to jam I like yeah. you know like I don't want I can give myself like little areas to feel it out and decide how long I'm gonna let something go for right. or like you know, give myself some room to feel the atmosphere of the place that I'm playing and like what it calls for. But the like knowledge that like I want to be prepared and I perform well when I'm prepared. Yeah. And just like letting that be the case has made me really love performing. Cool. Um, The tour that I went on um, about a month ago, like mostly to like the we like started in Chicago and toured back east was, um, yeah, just like felt super great. Like it was like definitely the first tour that I've gone on where I've like every set I played, I felt really confident about. And awesome. um, it was great. Yeah, I, I love performing. Looking forward to doing more. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I'm. I, a question I have is kind of, um, I guess this kind of like in some way segues into, uh, you know, your rent with no, no rent is, um, it seems like in the U S you have a pretty like strong core and network of like people who are familiar with their work and like you've toured with them and like, like fans and things like that. But I feel like you're, you're pretty low key on your, like, promotion or like outside of that like it took me a while to kind of realize like oh you are apologist you're also like you know I, i've heard of friends talking about you rosie you're also rosie you're also behind no rent and etc etc <laughs> like um is 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 it just something that you don't really like i don't know actively try like put put much work into kind of promoting it or something like that or is that why do you think that might be well Okay. I mean, I have a couple of theories. I mean, I think one would be that I don't really submit my stuff to music journalists. Um, so I don't know. 
you know, besides the reach of the labels that have put out my work or of no, you know, of no rent, like in the U.S., like, yeah, people do know me because I'm like around, you know, right. like I lived in a show house for a bunch of years. Like, so I met a ton of people that way. And like, I, you know, I'm pretty up for like driving to shows like up and down the East Coast and I'm, you know, stupid online and I'm always like talking to people on Instagram and stuff like that. And like, so like people like know who I am just cause like they've seen me around, but, and then like they ask me to play or see me play. But in terms of like, yeah, getting exposure outside of the people who I would just know, I feel sort of anxious about it. Like I just like, I, and I have like my own feelings about music journalism, not podcasts, sure. but and not like zines. I think zines are sick, yeah. but just like, you know, sort of traditional, like, or not traditional, like online music journalism. Yeah. I like, have like a lot of like sort of disdain for it. Mm -hmm. I think there's like a sort of like bottom feeding energy to these people where they just sort of act like entitled to you and yeah. your music without like, in, to my mind, really contributing much back to the scene like I think yeah. there's like so much you can do to be like a functional part of a music scene like you can distro and you can play and you can put on shows and then it's like you can write like pissy little reviews on yeah. Bandcamp and like that to me is just like so the bottom of the barrel in terms of like what you could like do to like make your scene be better mm. and so because of that disdain I don't like send out copies of my stuff to them to write about and therefore I don't really get written about mm. and I don't know like what other ways I would go about making myself known to people who wouldn't naturally know me sure maybe Maybe this will help. Yeah, I mean, I think it will. I think I think just like the connection. I think, I mean, like no, like you're behind you. You do no rent with with Jason, and I guess you guys put your face on it sometimes. But sometimes it's a little bit like. I mean, I guess most noise labels are, but sometimes it's a little bit like you know, this like the veneer of like the the design is very present, like the 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 graphic design, the labels, like it's very colorful, but like it's maybe not it takes some time to realize like who is actually the ones running it. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's intentional. I mean, Jason really wanted no rent to not be about him. Right. And both of us kind of wanted it to be like representative, you know, like to be this rather than being like a super hyper curated, like limited field of vision. We really just wanted it to be like a picture of the scene as it is. Yeah. And so it's not useful to have the label be like about us because right. it's not really about us. Like what we or we don't want it to be like, it's supposed to be like, you know, you go take a look at the no rent catalog and there's like sort of something from every every sort of tentacle of experimental music. Yeah. Like there's like something in there for that. So it's like, it's not about it being like our imprint as much as it's about like us trying to like, you know, be sort of like stewards of yeah. like this, this moment in time and the music that we're interested in. For sure. You all, you guys also do a cool shit like that. Uh, um, the Christmas card. I mean, that was, <laughs> that was yeah. also nice to so that show. That, that made it clear to everyone. Okay. This is like, this is the people behind it. That was, that was great. But, um, so, so you've been involved with no rent since when roughly more or less since, 
Okay, so, you know, No Rent technically started, like, 10 years before I got involved with it, but there were only, like, less than eight releases on it up yeah. until that point. Jason right, exactly. was just sort of using it as a place to, like, put things out to, like, pay rent, right. literally. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when I started dating Jason um, in 2015, he had, like, just um, – he had he was like getting like shitloads of unemployment because the place that he had been working at had closed and he was like i'm gonna take this unemployment money and i'm gonna like actually do the label now so when i met him or not when i met him i already knew him but when we started dating like the headband tape had come out which was no rent eight and i would say by like no rent 10 i was like actively involved in it like i got got involved in running the label very early on mm-hmm. into us dating just because there are things that i am a lot better at than him there's lots of things that he's a lot better at than me but i was like sort of excited by the project and i was like here's all these things that i could do to help mm-hmm. um and we like make a really good team on that front like you know i suck at mail order like i can never run a label on my own because i like just like it's gonna take me like three weeks to get to the post office and he's like, you know, he's printing postage. He's going there every single day. But you know, I'm much better at Photoshop. I'm like, I'm much better at like the online presence, Mm -hmm. like all of like, you know, like our websites and our newsletters Mm -hmm. and our social media and all of that stuff. Like I sort of like took over and Mm -hmm. he feel felt like very like, like it was shilling in a way that he like feels very uncomfortable about. Like he like feels very, there's like, yeah, like a feeling of like sort of prostituting yourself to get money sure. that he doesn't like that I don't mind. Sure. Uh, so like, yeah, we just like made a good team and I wasn't curating at the beginning. I don't know exactly when I started curating. Like for a while I was really just sort of operationally yeah. in the digital sense, like writing things. And at a certain point, like maybe like, I don't know, six months or a year in, I started also curating for the label. But okay. what are some, like who, who's responsible for the, for the aesthetic, for the graphic design, for example, or how, I mean, how, do, you, how, how do you, how do you split up some of the other things? Well, like for the graphic design, it's like, you know, we both make J cards things that are like standardized. Like I made the logo. I came up with the, the spines, Mm -hmm. like when we decided to like come back with new numbers and standardize the spines, that was sort of me. Um, because I know like collectors love when the spines all look nice, (laughs) but I mean, the decision for all the tapes to not look uniform was definitely Jason. Yeah. Um, and he felt really strongly about that. And he was like, you know, like a lot of the decisions like that both of us have made regarding the label are like pretty artist centric. Yeah. So like rather than it, and that's like another reason to not have it like be super tied into our identities, but like having the art not be uniform allows like, you know, an artist to decide what their tape is going to look like fundamentally within like some small, you know, boundaries as opposed to, their recordings being more a part of a catalog a record labels catalog than their own catalog and that was something that that we felt strongly about for the label jason felt really strongly about it yeah um and like there were like a lot of things like our decision to give 30 percent of the artist copies i think that's pretty standard now 
um, or something in that vicinity, but I don't think that it was when we started doing it. Um, (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know you did. Yeah. I guess I heard you did 30. Yeah. I think 20 is kind of the the standard that I've always been accustomed to. So you guys do 30, like, like, like as a rule. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, and yeah, I mean, in terms of division of labor, otherwise, I don't know. What do you want to know? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that, that, no, that's, that's a good, that's, that's a good, um, rundown of it. Um, so, like it's when I talk to Jason now and again about it, you know, so I'm usually like when I'm getting distant from him talking to him and yeah, I, can you describe like the business model that you guys have? Like, it seems like he's like, you guys are really all about like a certain day of the week, either each week oh, or every yeah. other week. And like a certain, you know, like, like it's, it's, it's stand like on the one hand, you're right. It's each artist has their own, there's no like label look and each artist has their own thing. But at the same time, it's an unmistakably looking no rent tape in its um like uniqueness. You know what I mean? And there's also like yeah. the standardized, like, like schedule you guys run and uh, kind of, can you tell me about just like kind of the business model, like selling things like, um, is it frustrating when something sells slow? Cause you guys take a lot of risks. You guys do a lot of stuff that is like maybe unknown and not seen established, not sought after. And then you also have like some releases that are, you know, surely guaranteed to sell out within like an hour. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the business model basically is that we use the guaranteed sellers to enable us to take a lot of chances on people. And that's like, yeah, like pretty much a core value of the label and, you know, like aligned with the sort of goal of creating a a snapshot of the point in time that we're in. In terms of the release schedule, basically like no rent is Jason's only job. I have other jobs, but, you know, and in terms of like the grunt work of running the label, he does it. Mm-hmm. You know, the mail order, the distro, the copies and stuff like and like. And because of that, it's useful for him to have a work schedule and it's useful for the money to be consistent. So for a couple of years, we were doing batch releases and we we were sort of opposed to batch releasing at the beginning because we wanted each tape to sort of shine as its own. Mm -hmm. And then we switched to doing batch releasing because production slowed down so much during COVID that it just made more sense for us to do it that way. But, you know, in terms of, like, Jason having a work schedule, that basically means there's, like, one week where there's, like, an entire month's worth of work, and then three weeks where there's nothing and no money. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we went back to the weekly releasing um, because of that. And I, I do think it's better. I think that there's, like... There's certainly a risk of like oversaturation or feeling like we're like in people's face all the time, constantly trying to sell them stuff, but also they buy it. So yeah, 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 <laughs> I yeah. Mean, yeah some tapes definitely sell worse than others. There's certainly, and I mean like any format besides tapes, in my opinion, is still like a lost leader decision from vinyl to CDs where like, you know, I wish there was more of a desire for CDs because the turnaround time is so much faster yeah. It's like a better price per unit, although you have to get 300 if you're getting them glass mastered. Right. And 
300, I mean, like, I'm sure you've experienced this, but there actually, like, is, like, a ceiling that's not particularly high in terms of, like, how many people want to buy a noise release. Like, even if it is, like, one of those guaranteed sellers that you're talking about, a guaranteed seller of a tape, in addition of 100, we can sell the, the, whatever, 60 or 70 of those that we have after artist copies and distro in a heartbeat any day of the week. If we had to sell 300 of them, it would still sit on our shelves for months. Like you see people who do CDs sitting on CDs and you're like, how hasn't this sold out already? But it's like, there just aren't enough people who are into it. Like it actually is super niche. Yeah, (laughs) it is. Yeah, I mean, you have, well, yeah, I mean, to move 300 CDs, I've been doing, since I started doing CDs, I've been doing 300 and it's been, I was like, sure that it was going to be like, oh, this will sell out in like two years. But a lot of those 300 CDs have sold within like a few months, but yeah, that's a few not months always, totally. exactly. That's, that's, that's a few <laughs> months. And that's also with a lot of trading, a lot of, I mean, a certain amount of giving, you know, not a ton of giving away, but you know, it's, it's like, I'm making sure they, they get out there and it's not like I'm getting individual retail orders for every single one of those. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, and it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely like you have to be at least willing to hold on to it for a few months and some, some, some much longer, you know, so much longer. Right. And like holding on to it is fine if there's like enough liquidity being created by the tapes to keep things moving. Yeah. You know, like no rent is like, despite being like, you know, a DIY label, it's like everything is pro produced. Like we get the tapes pro dubbed, we get like the pad printing on them. We're paying someone to do the J cards. Like, so there's no sort of like, like I, we have to be able to pay to do more stuff. And that like has to happen in a reasonable time period. So things like CDs and vinyl, while they ultimately do pay for themselves when you sit on them, it's not like there's like one day where you get back the $2,000 you spent. Right. You know, you like get it back in bits and pieces over the span of months, which right. makes it harder to sort of use it to push the label forward. Right. And the label is self-sustaining, which I know like a lot of like um, independent labels like aren't like there's like some sort of like it, you have a day job that is like supporting the label of love, labor of love that's the label yeah. and like best case scenario, you're breaking even. Right. And, you know, we're sort of insistent that the label be profitable because it's Jason's only job. Yeah. So, yeah. like, no, and it can, and it can like, be. I, I would like you guys to do more do sort of I mean, there are many, there are other models, other. there are other models to make our label profitable that I think are unethical. Um, that <laughs> people tr- you know, people try, you know, but I think you guys seem to be making like a nice little buck, but like you guys are solid and you guys do it, I think, in my opinion, like the the right way. So I've always said that was cool. And I also, like, I don't know, I was, I always really respect that even the fact that I might I like, like, I don't know. 70% or whatever of like the material, I'm still like really, res- I really respect what you guys do and how you guys curate that and how you guys put that all together. And I'm, I'm curious, why do you think you guys manage to do that? Whereas a lot of other labels that kind of try the same approach don't really pull it off. Well, so I would say that I don't know how many other labels are trying the exact same approach. They aren't. Um, like, I think that a lot of people have a much sort of more specific vision curatorially. I mean, I think that in general, labels wind up having like a broader scope 
when you have more than one person curating. So if a label is like one person specific vision, then it'll sort of reflect that. Yeah. Um, so I think it helps that like, you know, Jason has all of these connections to these like older, like sort of either like the ones who are legitimately like legends to us or people who have like sort of been forgotten about that he sure. wants people to remember. And he has like a real line into that. And he like, isn't really going to shows or like consuming a ton of like new music from young people. And I'm out, you know, playing and going to shows and I'm like, sort of like constantly. So like a lot of the younger people who appear on the label, like I found them mm-hmm. and that I think like, winds up creating a sort of larger scope of vision for yeah for the label than than either of us curating individually would do yeah um and you know i mean why we've succeeded at it while others failed i mean just i honestly think like just because like jason really did not want to go back to working working customer service so he's really committed to uh just digging through it. And I mean, I was committed to the vision, you know, like when he moved to Philly, I was like, look, if the label's in the red for the first year, like I'm going to float us. And like, if it's still in the red after the first year, we got to figure something else out. Yeah. And it wasn't. So, you know, cool. Um, but I mean, it's not, yeah. I mean, it's not just the, the success of maybe the sales, but it's also the respect. I mean, there's like, I mean, what, how do you feel about these, differentiations of of genre do you feel like i mean you guys don't really run into that like you know like harsh noise fans are usually pretty strict on like harsh noise and harsh noise labels release harsh noise whereas you guys right. release some of the best harsh noise around uh next to i don't know something that's like you know experimental pop kind of stuff but you guys still have the the respect of the harsh noise diehards you know yeah i don't I I think that we're likable. I think that like is like there's some element of like, you know, despite you saying that we're not the face of it. I mean, I think that especially, you know, Jason is just like a pretty trustworthy curator. Like, I think that, you know, even sort of didactic harsh noise fans are sort of interested to to take a chance on something weirder if it's coming from like a trusted voice. Sure. Um, but I mean, also some of that stuff that you're talking about that's not harsh noise, like, you know, we sit on it for a while. It does not move, like, immediately. And sometimes we definitely step too far out where we're like, okay, yeah, we're going to do this, like, weird, like, almost techno, like, yeah. but from like, a guy who's, like, friends with noise people. And yeah. then it's like, mm, can we sell that? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like, eventually we sell all of it. I mean, I think that, yeah, like, for whatever reason, and I think it, like, yeah, maybe some, to some extent it has to do with us and also has to do with us being sort of a reliable seller. Like, our mail order is fast. Right. We are, like, trustworthy in terms of, like, if you buy something from us, you're, we weren't always this good at this, but we are now. <laughs> like, yeah. if you buy something from us, you're going to get it, and you're going to get it fast. Yeah. And it's going to be, you know, well-dubbed and well-packaged. Yeah. And, like, yeah, you can count on it. Yeah. Um, 
Can you describe Jason's like? Because I've heard Jason refer to that like I used to suck at mail order, but can you describe his routine now, like his his mail order routine? Because now he always posts like, if you order by this time, like it'll go out today. And I've seen you know what's what's his what's his yeah, routine? He gives there? himself like a nine to five basically. Like he wakes up in the morning and he prints postage and he'll continually print postage as orders come in through the day. And then he'll usually go to the post office in the afternoon. Yeah, and that's just like daily if orders are coming in in that way. Yeah, cool. So everyone gets their stuff really quick. <laughs> um, this is something I talked to a, a couple other uh, guys on like one of the private episodes of the podcast recently is about, you know, what would, what would theoretically happen if within the noise scene, which is so much based on physical formats, you know, even though we have Bandcamp, which is, kind of popular but people usually i don't know popular and hated at the same time yeah but like, <laughs> like you know if we know that fuel prices are going up here this sort of material is becoming scarce like this and that tapes aren't so susceptible to this but at least the prices are rising like what happens to the noise scene as we know it if a tape costs like you know 15 dollars to produce and it's just un so it's un un unrealistic to, to make it like what, what are some of the options in your mind? So, I mean, my guess in a short term sense is that people would move to another format that was cheaper, right? Like it's still a physical format. I think if we reached a point where it was completely unfeasible, like either to mail or to produce these things, that if the solution would look less like Bandcamp than like media fire links yeah. or like people like selling like individual downloads of things or like I know like um our friend door network glass has like been talking about doing all of these like releases that are like sort of like you like have to like download these packs onto your computer and you can like play like you can like download like a pure data patch mm -hmm. and like play it and that's like his recording yeah and so there's like sort of I think that this sort of sterile mass produced feeling of Bandcamp. Like Bandcamp is certainly like I think that noise fans like things to feel esoteric and secretive in a way that like there is like definitely this sort of energy where people feel like connected to like a secret club and this is like your interest and they like don't really like seeing it become accessible. There's always a ton of pushback. Right on like sort of mass produced formats or like delivery systems. So I think that if we were like to move purely digitally, there would be, I don't know that it's going to be something like Nina. I don't know if you've talked about that, but I think that sort of, I, that idea is closer to what it'll be. That's, Nina that, is that yeah, one that's, that's a platform. NFTs. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I haven't really, wrap my head around what that is but i've seen that yeah i've seen that yeah and there's all, i mean I, I just thought of this right now but like there's also like like the stem player i don't know if that's i don't really understand if that's just a kanye west thing or if that's just a new idea that there's like some i mean of... kanye west did that but i could totally see something like to that effect being like a delivery system that was used like i think people are pretty and some people are pretty technophobic but i think that the solution winds up being 
maybe I'm just being optimistic here, but it's more technologically interesting than just like Bandcamp or something like Bandcamp. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. I think, I think the digital, I think the digital world could be interesting if it was, if the my, the minute aesthetics would have to be right somehow. Like it would have, it would, exactly. still, have to be, it would still have to be like DIY in some sense. Right. Like I think that, that, that that would be important and that until necessity drives it, you know, we all like our things. We all like our tangible objects. Like that's like important to people. People want a collection that they can have. So yeah, I think if we reached a sort of nightmare scenario where that just wasn't possible, that, that innovations would happen that were based around the like aesthetic needs of the community. And I don't think that anything like currently and existent really meets that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to be a doomsday like, but I mean, it's bound to change. It's bound to change in some way. I mean, you guys, I'm sure you can, I'm sure you can relate to the fact that cassettes are getting more and more expensive, almost like, I mean, yeah, I mean, short term, I think CDRs are going to make a huge comeback. I think we're about to see that. I think they're like easily home produced. Like, I think like, you saw a bunch of CDR releases in like the 2000s when like people got CD burners and like it was so easy to mass produce. And I think like, yeah, CDs maybe, but like home produced CDRs, like people with towers and stuff, I think like short term, we'll probably see that as a response to the rising cost of tapes because that is still cheap. And it's kind of a shame because they they degrade so much faster than tapes do. Like it's like more of an ephemeral know. But then but, that, yeah. Yeah, I mean tape prices are going up. It's it's sort of depressing. <laughs> um that part of the reason for that is like that they're gaining mainstream appeal. It's not the only reason, but it's like now we're sort of contending, you know, in the world of tapes with the same thing that like vinyl has contended with for like the last decade with right. the like you know, well, if somebody put in an order for like 10,000 Lana Del Rey tapes or something, yeah. then like, you know, your order's getting <laughs> pushed yeah. to the back of the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Runs. Um, yeah. Interesting. We'll see how, see how it goes. But I, mean, I feel like No Rent would, No Rent seems to be like one of the labels that would probably be on the, on the cusp of that. I feel like you guys are would have your finger like right on the pulse. You'll be like, a, like one step ahead. I don't know. I hope so. Uh, we're, we're trying. I mean, like I just did this, um, this drop of this austerity measures batch, which is like, yeah. Um, like I'm doing like a sub label or like an imprint on no rent. And that is to contend with not so much rising tape costs as like insanely slow production times. Yeah. Um, and we just like kept getting into log jams with our tape plant, like between like, yeah, them getting bigger orders between people, you know, it's still just like a bunch of guys working in a warehouse in Ohio. It's not like some like giant factory. So like people got COVID, it'd be like only one guy working there for a month, but it, you know, went from us like reliably like submitting an order for a hundred tapes and getting them in three weeks to it taking up to like three months. Right. And that just like really didn't give us a lot of flexibility. So we bought this tape duplicator just so that like, you know, it was like, let's, you know, open up another revenue stream. Like, yeah. let's like do like a sort of more DIY 
version. And I, you know, personally also just wanted an imprint where I could sort of drop apologist releases as I wanted to. Yep. Um, Cause I was starting to feel kind of stupid um, about submitting um, about like waiting for other labels to release my stuff to like a smaller audience on a timeline that I did not decide. Yeah. And I was like, what am I really doing? I have like this, like, very solid platform yeah. right here. Yeah. But then I was like doing CDs and I don't want to clog up the no rent catalog with my stuff, but I feel like more comfortable doing it on a serenity measure. That's cool. I mean, that, and that's the point of, that's the point of DIY that I think some people don't really get. Like, I mean, there's been some kind of people talking, why, why release your own stuff? Like have another label do it. But it's like, it's, you want to have control. And at some point, if you have the platform, I mean, these are maybe more like young, younger people who don't have the connections or like, how do I get people to want to buy my tape? And it's like, then it should go on a label. But at the same time, that, that phase of just putting out your own stuff at your stage is really, really practical and powerful because you have this platform and you have this infrastructure and you have these people and these networks to like get it to. But I also think, you know, if anyone's listening, who's a newer artist, it's wondering about it too. Still, you should do it. I mean, it's great to get yourself on a label, but I think just getting your own, just putting your own work into your own release in the full pack yeah, has a, a lot of value. I went around in circles within my head for a while because, yeah, I had friends who basically were always saying what you said to me, you know, where they were like, you should release on your own label, you know, because I sort of am, am in a strange position of like, by the time that I released the first apologist tape on, on No Rent, No Rent like already had like a, you know, the label had already been like pretty operational for a few years and it already had like a pretty solid reach. And I was like, I was very anxious about the idea that I would be perceived as using my label to sort of shove my music down people's throats. But that's like, what it's all about. That's that, um, that, 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 that was actually my, my, my question about when you, I mean, I was wondering if that was an element of, you know, my question kind of about your, your, your self-promotion or something like that. Do you, do you feel uncomfortable with the idea of kind of like, being like, here's no rent. And then here's my music on no rent. Like buy it. It's, it's awesome. Cause I feel like, I feel, I just feel like those, those, those releases were released pretty much like everything else, but like not with like an extra push, like, Hey, this is me. Like, this is also sick. Like you should buy it. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely. I mean like on my own personal social media or whatever, I talked about it being my own releases, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, I want to be professional about the label. I don't want to like give my music preference over everybody else's on the label you know like i don't want to make more of a fanfare about my own stuff and and maybe that's to my detriment i mean you know i have all of the classic girl problems where i like feel like i'm like you know gonna be exposed as a fraud like i'm just like taking up space like where like other people deserve it more like even when you asked no. me to do this podcast i was like well why would you want to talk to me like the only other girl who's been on the podcast so far is rosalka and she's like an absolute genius like you know it's like i could think of like 10 other girls who like should be on the podcast no. before me like you know like i just like have like that you know unfortunate female urge to uh self-doubt and that sometimes, you know, absolutely like works against me in terms of like self-promotion. Um, but I also think like I, uh, 
that's what I'm trying to correct for, like with the sure. austerity measure. Yeah, okay. Thing. Well, go for it. Go for it. Go for it. It's my imprint. Yeah. Like, go for it. It's time. Like the mo- modesty is modesty is important, but it's also at some point it's like, all right, enough with that, you know. Yeah, exactly. I didn't see. Yeah, it's just like it's to my own detriment. It's not doing me any favors. <laughs> so that's cool. I I don't have. I mean, maybe maybe by the time this comes out, I will have the austerity measures batch in the shop. But I I, I did for. You I, should. You should. I haven't boxed up to mail to you. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't. I haven't uh, dealt with. I haven't uh, sent the shipping or anything like that yet. But uh, but uh, yeah. So that's cool. I I, for, I did forget that that there's an apologist release in there. That's that's great news. So the, so austerity measure is like. DIY kind of style, like like uniform look. Yeah, so no it's digital, right? Hearts, no digital. Yeah, this is me. The no digital thing is me being like a little bit. I like hate Bandcamp. I like. I might like wind up like uploading the stuff to YouTube for free at some point because I do. I really love the idea of stuff being accessible to people, like the limited runs of things, and then it's just gone forever. There's something sort of sad about yeah. that to me, like. I want, I want things to be able to reach people, but I just really don't like Bandcamp. I um, we use it for no rent because we have to. It's fucking ubiquitous. Right. There would be so many people who would be disappointed to not be able to buy it. But I just, I um. Yeah, I know, and I, 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 I feel the same way. I mean, I, I I've kind of gotten in, I've kind of gotten the 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 habit of of listening to it on sometimes like if I'm just feeling lazy but that's that's it I I I do when I'm feeling lazy and I'm like oh I'll check this out and- Yeah I do it to listen to th- use it to listen to things too like it's a decent tool I just sort of resent it yeah. you know <laughs> like- Well do you know anything I know, I know it was recently bought do you know anything? Like, I forget how it was, but I know that people are like, oh, it's going to be, it's going to change. It's going to. Oh, that doesn't really. I mean, I already hated it before it was sold. And right. it's like, I, what part of what bothered me about it so much, honestly, was there was this, especially during COVID, this sort of lionization of Bandcamp. Like, it was like, this is the good tech company. Yeah. This tech company treats artists correctly, yeah. like unlike Spotify or whatever. And like comparing it to Spotify, I just feel like is really disingenuous, especially because many of us are using it to sell physical items. Yeah, you know, yeah, sure. Like digitally, it pays you more than nothing yeah. for your releases. Yeah. But in terms of selling physical releases on there, it's a much worse deal than selling on Discogs or selling on your yeah. own web store. Or like, you know, they're taking a cut out of every single sale, like yeah. a substantial cut. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. like if you like have like a big cartel or something, you're just paying, you know, like 20 bucks a month to host. Right. Bandcamp could take, you know, 20 bucks out of like, you know, Four, 5P yeah, or yeah. something. You know? For sure. It's, yeah. I don't know. Then the whole Bandcamp Friday thing got out of control. I mean, uh, that was. Oh my God. I mean, I, <laughs> Talk about just like I don't overloading. Want to badmouth people, speaker. but I mean, it's like, you know, I didn't, I didn't, like, I was like, okay, everyone needs to get some money and like whatever. Absolutely. But at the same time, this, when this day comes around, everyone's like, it was just, uh, I don't know, just kind of. I just like a deluge of putting people on a recording schedule. So like people felt like pressured to like release new music once yeah, a month so that exactly. they could like not get and and we're supposed to like respect Bandcamp because there's a day that they just let you get paid the full amount for your music exactly (laughs) what if you just like let us get get paid the whole amount for our music like most of the time yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i don't know i i feel like it's it's like one of those 
it's like any of these platforms that that are going to disappear with time, especially when they're owned, you know, when they're owned by someone else, they're going to disappear with time. So I think maybe that's like the importance of the future that has to be some, some somehow artist owned. Cause I mean, we had, Absolutely. We, had we had MySpace, you know, where, you know, we have had webs, even just, you know, websites that existed once are just, once a person stops paying their domain fees or whatever, at some point that's just gone. It's gone. And, you know, Bandcamp will be just the same. At some point, that'll merge with someone else. And then, you know, so, I mean, I feel like they're just, whatever whatever it is, wherever things go, it has to have some permanence, I think. And I think some sort of also artist-owned, like, it has to be owned by the artist and not just, just some sort of platform that we're using temporarily while they're letting us, you know? Right, exactly. You know, we're sort of there at their grace and we can be gone when they don't want us to be there. And, you know, there was all that stuff with Bandcamp a couple of years ago where they took all of that, like, all of the, like, porno grind off of it or something. Mm. Do you remember this? Right, there was, like, know. a mass shooter in the That's Midwest right. somewhere. Yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. Was like, shit, we're taking all the porn to grind down. And it's like, all of those kids were just SOL, like their whole catalogs just like deleted. Exactly. In a heartbeat. It's like, I don't know. That's like, crazy. That sucks. Yeah, like, that sucks big time. That's, 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 that's the craziest thing is that people put all their eggs in these baskets. I mean, all this stuff. I mean, yeah. even like this, I mean, okay, I'm like, but like, like YouTube could like shut down my podcast. I mean, I have, I, I have the files. I could do something else with it, but like, that's all just, I'm just at the mercy of them and, and they're, you know, I get flagged for weird things. I get reported for weird things that don't make any sense. And it's just at the, mer and the one thing that I tried to contest, I was arguing with a robot. Yeah, know? we do. I mean, we've had like, just like clips of clips of music taken down from YouTube, like, because like the album art has like a boob in it yeah. or something. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then you're not even dealing with a person who you can like hash it out with you're dealing with like ai or you know just someone that's just like yeah. click no and then it's like all right that's that's the end of this discussion so yeah <laughs> um so i was wondering you told me now you had the, the podcast you did listen to the podcast so now i'm gonna ask you and i ask everyone but um can you tell me your top five noise experimental releases of all time um, yeah, so I, I knew you were going to ask this and I felt a little anxious about it um, because I actually like, while I love asking people for lists, I like hate making them, sure. but I'll do my best here. I, I don't think I, um, okay, so like Work Deaths, Tender Comrades was huge for me. Mm -hmm. um, all of Work Deaths music. Um, I like getting into ambient music all of the brian eno ambient series i know it's like basic but like honestly it's just like pure writing to me yeah. in a way that really made me like think about editing and think about restraint mm -hmm. which i think is really important in ambient music yeah. um Laurie Spiegel, The Expanding Universe is like one of my favorite records of all time period but i think that's like a beautiful example of experimental music um anything that forest management has done mm -hmm. um is like just his entire catalog i think is unmissable and I, yeah I, I know i'm sort of cheating by saying whole catalogs That's but fine. i'm going to yeah. but then yeah i would also say that 
Aaron Dillaway's entire catalog is super critical for me. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just like an insane inspiration to me in terms of tape and just wild uses for it. Yeah. And then I know I already mentioned Colino, but I'm going to mention him again. But uh, yeah, um, Dog Lady Island, my Colino stuff in general is like unmissable. Great. Okay, cool. Good list. Um, and then the next question is top five of the past year. And I don't know how, you know, you, you have such a, a prolific label. I don't know. <laughs> I know like running a label, you know, running a label sometimes it's like, it's, you, I don't know how many, sometimes, sometimes people don't like dig that far outside their label and they release what they like, like on their label. But, but, but so give me, give me, give me five and, and they can also be on your label. Cause I think that's, I think that's fair. People usually don't do that because they, they don't want to be, I don't, they think it's not humble or they think it's arrogant. But I think if you didn't make the music, you can like, you can include it on your top five. So anyway, yeah, just, just, just. So, Kyle Flanagan dropped off a tape when he was in town recently called uh, Stoned in the Morning, Drunk in the Afternoon. Mm-hmm. It's a tape that I really loved that I've been listening to. Um, let's see. I'm trying to be intentional here. <laughs> um, my friend Carrie Ford, who uh, records under Beauty Work, who I toured with, mm-hmm. did an album called Lasagna. Last summer, it's a CD release on her imprint, KSX Solutions, mm-hmm. that is just godlike. Mm-hmm. It's so great. Um, we did a CD on No Rent last year for my friend Jacob Winans called There's Something in the Backyard. Yep. That's like him going insane at this noise house, Cold Spring Hollow. Like he recorded it like deep COVID and I like love that CD so much. So that's a No mm-hmm. Rent thing. Um, I hold on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to be very intentional here. Okay. Um, Ryan Ament in Richmond, Virginia did a tape on his own label, but I think it's the only thing on it called one good foot. Mm-hmm. That's so great. Um, it's just like, uh, he's like, Richmond, I know I watched the Dead Gods interview and everybody was like gassing up um, Richmond, but it deserves to be gassed up. More people should be listening to music from Richmond. Yeah, I still um, haven't really had the chance to really contact them. It seems like a lot of stuff is really hard. Like they talked about hard to even, it's very, very it limited is. and hard to come by. And I still couldn't really figure out who is who. Like I'm, it's still like pretty, pretty obscured. Yeah, I mean, it's worth just sort of trying to dive in um, as best you can. And then, honestly, um, here, another thing from this year we did on Austerity Measure, the Lee Counts um, tape, which is just like Lee was in um, American Band Mm -hmm. with Jason, and he's like a 70-year-old man, and it's like him just sort of doing like power tools on metal, and the tape that we did on Austerity Measure is like a – is like raw, like just the raw recordings of him doing that. Like um, Working Man Lay Down is going to do a release of of like sort of – more edited of that original sound source, but this is just like a like pure sound source 
C40 of like, like it's got talking in the background. It's just like a room recording of him, like this like brilliant old man, just like going to town on some metal. And it's just like so pure and wonderful. Great. Yeah. Looking Um, forward to that. I think that's five. That's five. Yeah. Cool. Three new tapes out now on white centipede noise, spring of life, brown bed, Moosehead, The Doors of Perfection, and Vincent Dallas, Phantom Clank. Available now at whitecentipinoise.com. New CDs coming very soon. Skin Graft, Final Judgment. Cackerlack, The Heat of the Whole, and Temporary and Successive Stages Reissue. Worth, Sacred Violent Noise Reissue. Grain Belt, Midwestern Companion, co-released with Phage Tapes. And Maranata Tarmac. Check out all available White Centipede Noise releases, as well as a giant noise distro at whitecentipinoise.com kind of going back to the austerity measures and the no digital effect what what effect does that have i mean do you ever feel like the the giving away some like thing on bandcamp before people have the chance to sit down and listen to the whole thing has a detrimental effect to it like cuz i mean bandcamp makes it really easy to one thing I've liked about Bandcamp when, I, when I've done it is I've considered doing, you know, you can buy it through Bandcamp, but you can't listen to it until you buy it yeah, just because it. not that I want to force people to pay, but like, it's not really, it can be, it can be like detrimental to the, to the consumption of the music to like, just select a track. It's like some, something you're really supposed to be listened to in full on a different, in a different atmosphere, you know? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And there's so much of that, right, where people just, like, click through one song and they, like, you know, when you go on Bandcamp and you look at the metrics for how people are listening to music on it, so much of the time they're not listening to the whole album. They're just, like, you know, there's one song that's got, like, hundreds of more plays than the rest of them. It's just, like, the first one. Um, And, I mean, do I think it's detrimental? It's hard to know because... You know, people still buy things on Bandcamp. Like, we sell a bunch of stuff on there. I mean, do I think that's how I I would want my music or most people want their music consumed? I don't think so, right? You record an album, you want somebody to listen to the album right. that you made. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know if it stops people from buying. I don't know what their listening is like when they get the tape and sit at home with it, you know? Yeah, once they've already, got the, once they've already got the files. I, I wonder about that too. Like once you've already got the files and the tape comes a week later or two weeks later or whenever, it's like, does this cut? Do are you stoked? Like, fuck, yeah. I got to throw this on right now. Or are you like, oh, okay, this is now like the, the physical token of that. But I've heard it already a few times. And, you know. Yeah. And I really don't know. I mean, I know for me, you know, like as a consumer, when I buy a tape, even on Bandcamp, I usually don't listen to it digitally. Yeah. If I know that I want to buy it, I wait till I get the tape and I listen to the tape. Right. Um, and I know plenty of people are like that, and I know, I'm sure plenty of people aren't. And I, I certainly know, like, you know, collectors or people who buy everything, like, how do you possibly have the time? Right. You probably, regardless of whether or not you're listening to it on Bandcamp, plenty of those tapes are sitting in a stack for however months till you get around to it. For sure. You know? I mean, I'm not really a collector, so I think I do sort of get around to listening to things reasonably quickly, but... that's Yeah, that's good. An- an- another thing, well, you, you talked about um, this disdain for music writing. And I, that's also a topic that I've been kind of like trying to, I don't know, like process for myself. And I've, I feel like a lot of other people have been kind of trying, trying to as well. Like what is the purpose of reviews and what, like, what, what are they for? And, and, 
and are they important and stuff like that? And I was talking to Sam from Phage Tapes and he was, you know, he, he's like, I don't, I mean, his position is like, I don't see the, like the point of view reviews or even descriptions sometimes for stuff. It's like, cause there's Bandcamp cause people can check it out on their own. But there's also, I mean, I'm kind of more of the opinion that somehow just even to, to, to document a release, but also like just to have, I don't want to say like a gatekeeper, or a tastemaker, but someone like, like, like the label, like that's the f- purpose of the label. And that's like the purpose of no rent. Like for you guys, like people know that you and Jason run this label and you're both respected, like artists and people that people know and trust their taste. So you releasing something is, you know, there's a million, million, million experimental releases coming out at all times. But if you have like to choose, Oh, I'll see what these guys are talking about or see what these guys are releasing. Same with like a, a, like a, like a review. Like, I think that's still really important somehow. So I think like reviews, like, you know, the reason I made the distinction between like zines and writing online, although like some early blogs definitely also meet the standard is like, yeah, I think that that, that there's still a place for that. If it's a voice that you trust. Yeah. So, like, it's very, like, important, you know, the value of a music review written by somebody who I don't have respect for is not valuable to me. Exactly. So, you know, there are, like, you know, when there are zines or, like, when there's, like, a person who's consistently writing good reviews, I mean, like, even, like, okay, like, Franz Award on, like, Vital Weekly, like, that, to me, while I don't always agree with his opinions, is, like, a trustworthy source for music writing yeah. because he's willing to be critical, because there's no commercialization of it. Yeah. Like, I don't trust a single review I read on Bandcamp daily because, to me, that's payola. Like, they're literally only selling – they're writing reviews of things that they're also selling on the same platform. Yeah. Like, what's different than that than somebody getting, like, pay to play on the radio? Right. Like, that, to me, is just, like, fundamentally untrustworthy. Yeah. Whereas, like – I don't know if you've ever read, like, the Noise Widow zine. I actually am – I need to get back in touch with her because we were talking about – getting a bunch for the distro and then it, we haven't spoken in a while, but yes, that's a, uh, that's something I've, I've, I've seen. I've exited. I great. love those reviews yeah. because she like blind listens to them. Yeah. <laughs> like she has like her boyfriend, like pick the tapes and she just like writes what she thinks. And then at the end he tells her yeah. what it was. That's good. That's great. Um, that's you know, like, I don't think that there's like not a place for that, but I think that there's so much of it. And so much of it is like, so clearly just like, glad handing or like just like bigging up your friends or like bigging up yeah. like things that you're selling in a way that it just like all comes across is just like you know it's fine everybody's got to make a living but it's like it's not for me it's not informing my listening yeah well that's i mean i think noise is still somewhat somewhat like not immune, but like outside of that existing. But I mean, like Sam again was talking about how he had, he released some sort of like EBM record and the band really wanted to have it released or reviewed by a certain person who I guess in the scene is like respected. So Sam contacted them and they had a feed, you know, just to like, just to review it. So he got, you know, it's like, so I guess people don't really, I don't, I don't, I never really thought of that before. And I guess I never thought about the, the implications there, but I mean, like, I'm so, like, I'll be honest, sometimes I'm personally conflicted. Like, I thought about, oh, I should do like reviews and stuff like that. Of like, but it's like stuff that's in distro. It's like, but how critical do I want to be? 
because I want to be critical of my reviews. How how much do I want to say something sucks that I'm like sitting on, you know, five five copies here to sell? Like, like that's what I'm saying. It's like directly, like it's hard to do reviews and be selling at the same time without being sort of compromised by that. You know, like you're either acting directly against your own financial interests and the interests of like artists who you're paying to distro or you're only giving good reviews. And if you're only giving good reviews, you're kind of untrustworthy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I still, yeah. Like the zine, the zine thing is still, it's not alive and well, but the zines thing is still going on. I mean, you still, there are still those, those people who are, you know, either web zines or, or, or print zines that are still doing like, real just like this is what i have in my collection or you know this is what i think about it which i think is awesome but yeah i don't know how that can be how that can be broadened because right now like the zine is dead it's like a i mean it's not dead i'm not yeah i'm not happy that it's, it's close it's happy it's dead, but it's like you know that's it's and there's this internet thing that we have we can all fucking make tons of content and share it directly which is awesome but like how do we then apply that same sort of, I guess, I mean, I don't know. I could just do like normal zine style reviews more on the internet and post them. On Instagram. Yeah. I mean, there is, there's the noise, you know, there's, 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 there's that spatted about, but I mean, I think it'd be cool to have that be more centralized and more like visible, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, in some ways, like I would like zines to still be a thing. I don't, they are. I mean, they still exist. There are some good ones coming out, but they come out like once a year. Yeah. I just don't know if I like, if I have, if I feel like we need like to centralize more sort of reviewing. Like, I think that the places where it happens online sort of organically, like whether it's like Facebook groups where people are posting stuff that they're listening to you or the, you know, the noise forums or whatever, yeah. you know. Or, like, I think that, like, all of that stuff is sort of fine to be where it is, that, like, crowdsource, like, people yeah. talking about what they like and they don't like. Yeah. I think, like, the more you sort of centralize it, the more you sort of codify it, yeah. the closer you get back to the stuff that I don't like, yeah. where it's like, you know, there's some sort of financial compulsion to be writing certain things or to not be writing certain things. Yeah. I think that sort of ruins it. Yeah, yeah for sure. For sure it does. Visit the links in the description now to purchase what is now available from Rose Actor Engel, Apologist, and No Rent Records directly from the source. Also available at White Sand Noise, a wide range of new and old No Rent titles. Use the code No Rent for Life. That's No Rent, the number four, L I F E, to get 10% off at the White Sand Noise mail order on No Rent titles. You guys are very active. I'm sure by the time this airs, you'll have much more on on the way, and uh, and we're looking forward to it. Looking forward to more apologist. And thank you for taking the time. And uh, thank you. This was great. Yeah, cool. Well, take care and have a good day. You too. Yeah.
Thanks again for tuning into White Sampy Noise Podcast. Head over to the Patreon for more, including private episodes of Noise on the Run, exclusive photos, video, and audio related to the show, and discounts at the White Sampy Noise mail order. Your support is extremely appreciated and vital to keep the show going.